0: Hi, this is Tony Tolado, and this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our own humanity. My New Year's Eve marathon concludes with Yesterday Was a Lie, a time-bending movie with twists. I'll take a look at it in a moment. Yesterday Was a Lie is an interesting yet unusual film that makes you think about time and relationships. I chatted with some of the cast and the film's director, James Kerwin, Without giving any spoilers away, can you tell us what the plot is about so people we 've kind of been dancing around it, but as much as you can give without giving spoilers away
1: it's it 's really hard to talk a lot about this film actually without giving spoilers away. Mm-hmm. one of the whole points of the movie is I wanted to create a film one, one of the concepts of the film is that I, I wanted to create a, a, an experience where it's basically as if it's a two-hour film with the first half-hour cut off, like you, like you walked in part way into the movie. So you're not only trying to uh, figure out the answers to the questions that the main character is investigating, but you're trying to figure out the questions themselves. Part of the, the, the film's conceit, so to speak, is that you don't know what the plot is. You don't know anything about what's going on. You don't know these characters. They don't have names. You, you're really kind of lost when the film starts, and you have to piece together exactly what the heck is going on as the main character does. I will suffice it to say that it's it's uh, a typical type of, of, of film noir thriller in the way in, in a way at least it starts out that way about a girl who is, either a private detective or a reporter or a cop or something you don't really know. Um, all you know is she walks around at night in a trench coat and fedora and has some partners with guns and they're trying to figure something out. They're basically trailing uh, a reclusive genius named Dudis, whom she believes has access to or is about to get access to um, an old Nazi science journal um, that was smuggled out of Germany between the world wars that has some information about it in about how to manipulate reality and time and she really wants to get her hands on this before anybody else does mm. so that, that's kind of the where, where you start with the film but mm. as it goes on you realize that that's not quite what the film is actually about it's about something much more than that it's about something much deeper than that
0: Interesting. I, I like. If, I don't know if you know the term MacGuffin, which is yes, something. Uh, I, I like your MacGuffin. I think it's a really cool one. So, uh-huh. so that should be cool. Uh, one thing. I mean, it's it's told in a very film noir style. What was the influence, and what what essentially led you in that direction?
1: I, the film noir. Film noir is something that I had never really been that fascinated with until we we were developing this project. Mm-hmm. But it is something that. That has so many interesting motifs to it that aren't really used in film today. Uh-huh. Um, just not not simply the fact that it's shot in black and white but the composition and the lighting and the, the themes and the mood, moodiness of it. it. It really evokes certain psychological feelings, certain emotional reactions that I wanted to evoke in the audience. Not to mention the fact that the fact that it's in black and white and the fact that it's a film noir, even though it's not set in that time period, it's set in relatively modern times. There's computers and cell phones and things, but everyone kind of looks and dresses and talks and like, like they're in a film from back then. The architecture is like from a film back then. So that right there is symbolic of what is going on in the psyche of the main character. Uh, a, lot, a lot of the things in the film, from the noir elements to the, a lot of the scientific theories and elements, are really just symbols for what's going on psychologically with, with, with this main character and
2: characters.
0: Very interesting, I, I think too, what was cool is you know you kind of switch genders a little bit with the main character. usually you see a guy like the hard boiled detective who knocks down bourbon like it 's water, and you made him a woman, and I thought that just gave it an interesting new spin to it
1: yeah it, it is really it, it, it is an interesting spin I think that I think that Noir is beautiful, but there 's so much more that could be done with it because you 've never really seen a woman in that capacity in Noir before but 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 at the same time, Hoyle is a character who. In, in addition to being a woman, she has many of the traits of the typical masculine hero, right. and but she has feminine traits as well. So it was extremely difficult to write for, and it was extremely difficult to cast that role. I mean, we, I think we had like four, five, six rounds of auditions um, before finally casting that role, um, because you have to have a person who can, who, who has all of that within them.
0: Is that what Kipley gave you, or did she give you some surprises, too, when she auditioned?
1: She, she, she had a big hand in the creation of this role, as well. She was cast pretty early on in the process. The film lineup up getting delayed and stuck in turnaround for about a year. Um, and so, Kipley and I used that time wisely, basically. We we auditioned. I um, mean, we rehearsed maybe two or three times a week um, for almost a year on, on this. We just would sit down and get together and go over scenes and go through, you know, discuss beats and the fine points of characterization from one moment to the next, and we really, really dug into the meat of the script, and I, I, I rewrote portions of the script based on her performance, and she threw out suggestions, and I threw out suggestions, and we kind of shaped the
0: character together. Let's get back to sci-fi talk with actor Kipley Brown, who plays a combination of a hard-boiled detective and a femme fatale—a role that definitely has its challenges because of, you know, the duality of it in that way.
3: Absolutely. Oh yes, this was this was quite a (laughs) lion (laughs) to tame. Which often the best roles are in scripts that are this complex and incredible. Mm -hmm. I I just fell in love with the script right, right away. Um, but in terms of sort of stepping into that very male dominated stereotype, you know, the hard boiled detective. Yeah. It was very, very daunting, but probably, you know, in some ways I'm lucky because it would be less daunting than trying to fill in a stereotype that's been done perfectly. Like, for instance, if this was a male character, people would start comparing him to Bogart and, you know, the, the, the greats. Um, you know, in a modern context, and it's hard to live up to, you know, when something's been done so well for so long. So, people don't really have a lot to compare my portrayal with so you know that gave gives me some latitude um but it, you know it was it was very daunting cuz some people may not understand why this character chooses to embrace her masculine side the way that she does of course you know the the film is not linear and we see the character of Hoyle in other timelines when she does embrace more of her feminine side right you know it's funny i always loved film noir growing up as a kid And I always dreamt of playing a female film noir detective. This is absolutely true. In high school, I created a character. I was like uh, one of those forensic nerds, you know, speech and acting team. And I created a character named Scarlett Black, um, who was a female P.I., and it was a more of a comedic take on the whole thing. But, mm. you know, I used that character for years um, as a monologue or uh, I do sketch comedies, or the character in sketch comedy. And then when this script came across, you know, I was like, all right, it's about time. And boy, am I, have I been waiting for this one because, you know, I've always dreamt of, of it being handled really well. And you know, sometimes they'll they'll take a female and put her in a man's role, but they'll really vamp it up, you know, like she's right. femme fatale. You know, and in this way, Hoyle isn't the femme fatale. She's a human being, so multidimensional. You know, ultimately, when I felt myself feeling daunted by the task of playing this, I had to remember that this is a journey of a human being, not a man, not a woman specifically. But the the truths that she's seeking are universal to both genders.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, when you're in that world and you got the fedora and, you know, you got the glass with, with the props, as, you know, a lot of actors have said, helps them to get to where they need to go. Was that, did you find her, uh, you know, that way or did, I know you had a lot of rehearsal yeah, was, uh, was, or was she found in the rehearsal process?
3: A little bit of both mm-hmm. because we did have so much rehearsal that, and, and for a project like this, um, I had to read the script multiple times just to understand exactly what was going on. And I'm not trying to say the film will confuse you necessarily, but there's a lot going on. It's one of those things that when you read the script, you can read it again and find something new each time you do. And I wanted to do it justice and and really embrace all the aspects. I mean, I had to do a lot of research to to play Hoyle into things that I would never have normally maybe studied, things like alchemy and metaphysics and Questions better left for physicists and philosophers that are posed throughout the movie,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and a lot of them are sort of ephemeral qualities that it's hard to nail down into a solid character. Hoyle is also looking for these answers, so I embrace the fact that we're both very confused and we're trying to seek the truth. And the, the props, you know, like I. Were very attached to my prop gun. <laughs> I was, like, doing all the little tricks, you know, trying to, to flip the cartridge back in without using my fingers, you know, the little, like, click flip. Oh, yeah. Proud of myself. <laughs> I actually did it in the film, but that take didn't work, so it got cut. Oh, well. It was pretty cool.
0: Maybe it's on the DVD. You never know, eventually. Well, I
3: hope so, because, you know, <laughs> I, it's all in the wrist.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would <laughs> think so.
3: But, uh, yeah, the costuming, absolutely, you know, it's, it's icing on the cake. You, you form... The personality of this person that you that you're going to inhabit, and then when you wear their clothes, it's just it sort of is the the button on it, mm-hmm. you know, the period on the end of that sentence of you know finding out who they are. And it it was you know it was cool, you know, walking around in a fedora and it's not a very intellectual take on it, but it you know it was fun. It was really fun being able to dress like that. You know, the props at times were difficult. Like I, I remember one scene, and this isn't g- giving anything away, but
2: okay.
3: I have to juggle a flask, a watch, and a cup of coffee. In about a 10-second period, I deal with them all with one hand. (laughs) Well, hey. Uh, You know, I'm just sort of using one, putting one down, putting one back in the pocket, drinking out of that, you know, and trying to look like I'm not freaking out trying to get it right, you know, trying to look like I'm not concentrating more on the use of the props than I am on the scene. But we, we, we tackled that one.
0: How many takes did it take to get it right? (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, you know, because this is an a independent film, we didn't have a huge budget. Right, and right. We didn't have the, you know, luxury of numerous takes. So it, it, we did three or four takes that, that were definitely usable, but I believe the last one I just sort of whipped each thing in and out, you know, without it getting caught in the jacket. I think it just, I finally nailed it at the end.
0: Hey, that's good. Yeah. Only four takes. I'm impressed. I think it'd take me like a hundred to well, do all I that. I had to practice that. I'm sure you did, yeah. There is more on Yesterday Was a Lie in just a moment. Let's get back to Yesterday Was a Lie. Chase Masterson plays Singer, a character that may transcend our own reality.
4: Singer is actually a really pure being coming from a place of just incredible love and acceptance. Um, her her sole purpose is to be there for Hoyle in a way that Hoyle... Um, can't be for herself in a way that Hoyle, you know, would would love to have the kind of wisdom and insight um, and purity of, of of understanding that Singer has, but she just doesn't. So Singer comes out of the blue to to teach Hoyle and to let mm-hmm. her know um, the things that she's searching for.
0: Wow, it's very interesting. I mean, yeah. the, the whole movie just sounds like it's its own animal. You really can't pigeonhole it into anything. Uh, I've kind of come up with sci fi noir.
4: Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. It is sci fi noir, and it's very hard to p- pigeonhole, and, and I think that's, you know, definitely the way James Cruyff intended it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, he certainly has his inspirations. You know, the movies he loves are like Primer and Pie and yeah. Stanley Kubrick's work, and, you know, a lot of really wonderful, um, you know, other creative geniuses, basically. But I think this movie is still quite unlike anything that's ever been seen.
0: hmm yeah. How did this thing come together? Because you're also one of the producers of the film. Was it a meeting with James and that kind of thing?
2: Or? Crazy
4: stuff, huh? <laughs> that's Hollywood for you. I actually met one of the producers, Sarah Bruce,
2: Mm -hmm. she's
4: um, actually the co-executive producer. I met her uh, in the bathroom at a party. (laughs) Oh,
2: look at
4: that. (laughs) Yeah, and um, we just started talking, and um, she said, "Why don't you audition for this film? I, I have a role for a, a girl who's a singer." And I, I said, "Oh my gosh, I sing!" And she, you know, hadn't known that. And so we just kind of kept in touch a little bit about it. I, I met with James, and I met Kipley Brown, um, who of course, of course plays Hoyle. Had a, a, an audition not long after our first meeting, and I was cast and extremely excited about it. And We were in the rehearsal process, which was going to be about a two-month, month-and-a-half or two-month process. The producers fell out, which in Hollywood East means they decided not to do the film. Mm. Um, It happened because they wanted more money for themselves, and they didn't feel that we could do this film on the budget that it had. And they just, you know, quit, basically. And so we, you know... I had a powwow and thought, oh, no, you know, the show must go on. How do we do it? And I went away and started thinking, well, you know, maybe I can do this. And so I went back to James and I said, look, I, I'd like to give this a, a shot for you because you deserve this film to be made. It's just an amazing piece of work and you're an amazing talent. And I know from being in Hollywood that it's hard to get anywhere unless you have people behind you. You're only as strong as your team. Yeah. So I just basically stepped in and I said, "Okay, well, I'll do it." And I didn't know if I could, but I gave it my me- my best shot. And um, and as it turns out, yes, I'm I'm the producer. <laughs> so it was pretty wild wearing both hats, mm-hmm. um, especially because Singer was a very demanding role. Um, I sing four songs in the film and had to really, you know, <laughs> smack myself into great shape and you know all the while being on the phone gathering you know basically all of the elements that were needed f- for the film um mm-hmm. it, it was it was it was pretty rough but um we do have an amazing team of of designers um uh Jill Kerwin's production design is exquisite and our uh DP Jason Cochard, was uh just phenomenal we we found him as a a relative newcomer and I think he's going to really go places Christopher Carter, who uh, has won two Emmys for his composing, has done our music, and um, he's an extremely fine talent, and Brianna Califf doing the makeup, which of course was not easy in in terms of the the noir, uh, black and white, so all of this combined with James Kerwin's amazing vision, and uh, his script is just simply one of the best I've ever read, and I mean, I could go on and on, but he's yeah. hes truly um, truly a, a director to watch.
0: Back on Sci-Fi Talk with actor John Newton talking about the film Yesterday Was a Lie and his character the intriguing Dudas.
5: Well, it's such an uh, unusual deal for me. I mean, it's a total departure from normal Hollywood. You know, most mm. people are I don't think most people, but a lot of productions are more concerned with, you know, what's going to be the appeal, and what's popular right now, what's what's hip and all that. And, uh, and James uh, had such a great vision when we first met on the project, which was actually a couple of years ago, it took a while to get kind of the ball up and rolling. And uh when we first met and I just, I, l- I loved his passion for it, but he just, he didn't really care what was, you know, appropriate or not. He's like, this is what I want to shoot. And he had such a vision and he's very passionate uh, and, and controlling in a good way creatively to, because he had such a clear vision and, uh, working on black and white was so, I'm not right. Um, I think they what they actually did was they shot in color and then they desaturate or, you know, do whatever they do, uh,
2: mm-hmm.
5: in, the videos. You know, in the old days video was like a, a taboo, you know, like a no real, uh, real director or DP will shoot on video. Nowadays it's getting to be the norm. Yes it uh, is technologies kind of uh, stepped up and various plugins to, to make the video look like film and, and
2: hmm.
5: 24p and not interlaced and all that but uh, it was great working on the project I have to say the script was really good um, and uh, and if it was bad I wouldn't I wouldn't mention it but it really was good it was really tight James was really worked hard on it and, and he really under understands characters and everything because being the writer and the director and also knowing a lot about the genre which is you know, in and of itself, a whole you know we could talk about for quite a while. Uh, sure, it was awe inspiring. You know, just because he really knows what he wants, you know, and you you got to give it to him. And if you don't, he'll he'll be there till you get it. So. <laughs> <laughs> now I
0: did I did see like some stills from the website of yesterday as a, was a lie and there's a great shot of you. I guess you're at a nightclub, and you're in like this white like suit or tux. Man, that must have been cool to wear something like that. You know, it uh,
5: was <laughs> like Superfly meets, uh, you know, uh, meets Car Wash. No, but the, the the cool thing about it is shooting black and white is you got to realize what should, what shoots well, like how do how do things look on, in black and white. You right. can't wear a white suit, you know, it's just too hot. It, mm-hmm. it just doesn't work. So the suit, I believe my shirt was pink, and my suit was like this cream color. And I'm like, you know, wherever we're shooting, I'm sure people are thinking, oh my god, what a low budget pos. And um, and I, uh, you know, it just, cause that's what looked great on black and white. They did a lot of tests with, uh, you know, different types of material and, uh, colors and hair and makeup. Cause, you know, normal makeup looks quite, you know, frankly looks pretty bad in black and white. You know, mm-hmm. you have to find makeup that'll warm you and, and not make you look like you're wearing paste. And actually we wear hardly any makeup cause it's perfect for the character. It's kind of going off on a dementia slash, you know, you don't know who's, who's a figment of whose imagination in the film, and I don't want to hmm. throw anything away. But.
2: Yeah.
5: But yeah, so it was interesting wearing the white suit, but it wasn't a white suit, so I didn't feel like, oh, well, I'm, I'm wearing this cool white suit. It was like, okay, it has got a blue light going somewhere. I'm going to run over and buy a suit. That's, that's what it felt like.
0: <laughs> now, your character, uh, as I understand it, he's um, kind of a reclusive scientist. Is that right? He
5: is... A conglomeration of an uh, ethnobotanist a scientist a uh, psychologist i mean we don't really know what he is we know he's 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 definitely a philosopher, and we know he's he's impassioned in this search for um this grail uh, uh, as you might call it it's it's more like uh he's found this key you know to be able to go move through time and repair something that as the story unfolds, we realize what it is. it is a hmm. relationship oh wow. Um, It's hard to it's hard to say too much about it without giving giving it away Mm. because you know it's it's one of those things like the sixth sense where you don't realize what's going on until the end of the movie at least I didn't. Hmm. Uh, people tell me, oh, I knew all along that Bruce Willis was dead. I, I don't believe him. Anybody who says that to me, I don't believe him. They, they did such a, Shamalan did such a good job with that. That's right. That's right. I love that film. But anyway. But yeah. he, he's, he's an archaeologist, but more of an urban archaeologist, and he's totally fascinated with this, uh, this the Slash kind of German Nietzsche kind of text that he finds that, that gives him some keys into moving through time and stuff and, and we it, it touches on a lot of different concepts a lot of you know what it's, it seems very intellectual but it's actually not it's very simple kind of um, it's a hard story but it, it seems like it's a very mental story but it's not I think it would appeal to a wide a wide uh, base. The
0: film has a solid supporting cast like actor Nathan Mobley. He described his role to me.
6: His job is a little lab assistant. He's working in this uh lab where they're doing some. I guess it's okay for me to say some undercover, um, some very clandestine type work, and mm. um, it's the kind of stuff that not many people know about. Obviously, so so our hero comes to to kind of tap into whatever they're doing. And the lab. What was great about the lab assistant? What was great about the role was that not only is he kind of giving them some pivotal information for the film, but he's also, uh, it's, it's fun to play because he's, um, he's also girl crazy, um, <laughs> but he happens to be kind of a big dork. So, um, therein lies the drama. Yeah. And, uh, uh, so, you know, these beautiful women come in and not in his wildest dreams, uh, has he had, does he ever think that this could be something that would happen to him? So, They, uh, using their powers of coercion and, and, uh, you know, that beautiful woman have, they, they, they they attempt to get, uh, some of the sensitive information out of the lab assistant.
0: Would that be in the sense of Kipley's character of Hoyle and, uh, also, uh, Chase's singer? Hoyle and singer. Ah, yeah. I want to dance around this a little bit, but essentially, is this something, these experiments, something related to time? Yes. Ah, okay. It is. When people piece this together with uh, John Newton's interview that we have, they know that something's up. Uh, and okay. actually, it's it has come out that there is uh, apparently a Nazi journal that is out there right. that has, uh, you know, like... Like dr. Frankenstein's Secrets of Life and death, this one has pretty much some really interesting information and concrete theories on time and manipulating it so right, so uh, that's kind of like the uh, you know the the arc like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, or you know that the, the thing that everybody wants yeah, or because of the film noir references in this film, I guess you could say it's like the
6: Maltese Falcon oh of the film <laughs> yeah, oh <my laughs> yeah oh exactly this elusive uh, piece of history that contains, that they need to kind of, you know, it's that final piece of the puzzle.
0: Scoring the film is composer Christopher Carter.
7: Every aspect of the film, of filmmaking, I think is is about one person with a certain skill coming and helping the the filmmakers achieve that portion of their vision. Mm -hmm. And as much as I, I am a musician and a composer, I also consider myself a filmmaker who happens to specialize in music. So from the very beginning, James and I talked about how is the music going to help us tell the story? What is, what is it going to fill in for the audience that, it, to enhance what they're seeing on the screen, to enhance what they're not seeing on the screen? And, and how are we going to best communicate that using what kinds of sounds, what, kind of, what kinds of um, things are going, to, are going to be able to pull that, that, uh, the emotions out of the, the, the viewer when they're watching the film? Yeah, And you're, you're right, absolutely. While the look of the film is film noir, it's not pure film noir. And in that sense, we also felt musically we should do that as well. Uh, while there are jazz and noir sounds built into it, uh, we also incorporated a lot of, of, of ambient textures, synthetic elements, elements that are like noir instruments, saxophones, and then processing them and kind of manipulating them in, into their own uh, unique soundscape in the way that You know, you kind of question the reality of whose perspective it is in the film that we're seeing. You also kind of phonically are questioning, well, what what exactly am I hearing?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. What I think is uh, a staple for film noir and this type of music is a great saxophone. You know, like that jazzy saxophone. You gotta have that. The thing that I liked about the way you used it was, there was on, on one track in particular, I remember the way the sax was almost layered. And it just really created a totally unique texture. It was like using a staple of film, but as you said, manipulating it a little bit and really making something that's a little bit more original, which I really, really dug.
7: Yeah, I mean, as the film touches on, on, uh, kind of alternate timelines that are all happening at once, and I just want to make sure that I'm not spoiling anything. I don't think (laughs) that I am. I think it's obvious as you're watching the film that there are, there are several, several different points in the story of where we are. In that way of layering the saxophone, and if this kind of something is, seems close to you, other things feel more distant, it kind of mirrors what 's happening in, as the, the the film's unfolding as
0: well mm-hmm. to me, a score is really helps to set the mood of the film and maybe where the film is going and to set the setting and obviously back up uh, you know the visuals that we're seeing to right. kind of create the mood that's necessary. What was it like your first reaction when you saw like the footage that was you know shown to you?
7: I, I instantly started hearing music. Believe <laughs> oh, <laughs> cool. it or not, it responds very much to the pictures that I'm seeing, and uh, I can tell when I like a film when I'm already hearing stuff. I, I am surprised that people that can write film music th- th- without ever even seeing the film, because it, to me, the, the timings and the choices and the colors, all that stuff happens. As a response to what I'm getting from the picture, as soon as I saw it, I was so excited to see that James just nailed the, the feel, you know, the look and the emotion, the, the emotional mood that I was hoping he would with the picture and the acting and Kipley and, and all the, the, the cast was just phenomenal. And as soon as I saw it, I, I, I was thinking, yeah, I, I can do something with this.
0: <laughs> very cool. Now, what what kind of musical palette did you have to work? I, I mean, did you have what type of orchestra did you have, or did you essentially take care of everything yourself?
7: Well, this is a mod- modestly budgeted film, right? And so we had to be rather judicious in what we uh, what we did with instruments. Um, I did have a very small string group. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the score features phenomenal cello soloist. Uh, his name is Armand Uh He's one of the top LA session guys out here. He played just beautifully. Uh The strings, more or less, you know, supplemented his work, kind of provide the background. Uh, I also had Malcolm McNabb, who is... The, the number of films that he has done number in the thousands. He was Jerry Goldsmith's principal trumpet player, and he did all the trumpet solos on um, L.A. Confidential.
2: Oh, wow, yeah. And
7: so I thought, well, he would just be absolutely perfect. Yes. He was. He really nailed that. And then the uh, woodwind doubler, uh, the woodwind player... Is a guy named John Yokum who I've worked with before on some of the uh, animated Batman series and and other things and and he plays only tenor sax on the score, but he actually is a really fine oboe player and flute and clarinet and you just put something in front of him and he'll pick it up and make a sound on it. It's rather rather phenomenal. And then that was kind of the organic side of the score. Yeah. And then to capture the the more unsettling part where where Hoyle's is kind of confused about what's happening. We turn to more of a synthetic palette, which uh, combined ostinatos are are patterns of repeat in kind of a hypnotic fashion on between harps and piano and uh, vibraphones. There's another noir instrument, and then purely synthetic textures, kind of these these atmospheres, clouds of, of uh, synthetic sound that can either be really beautiful in mm-hmm. in a certain in a kind of unsettling fashion or really unsettling in an unsettling fashion.
2: Yeah, exactly.
7: By uh, you know, kind of juxtaposing the organic with the synthetic mm-hmm. in the uh, It really created a unique sound. I think, again, like the film itself, isn't just noir and it isn't just ambient either. It's it's a really combination of of that.
0: Director James Kerwin tells me about the creation of the story. You wrote this as well. So when you were writing the screenplay, I mean, were you also wearing partly your producer's hat, thinking of a budget and things like that when you were Ab- writing it? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
1: this is this is only my second feature, and I didn't have any delusions about having you know millions and millions of dollars to, to spend on you know craft services or whatever. Uh, you know, I, I knew I was going to have to uh, write. With certain locales around Los Angeles in mind and things like that. Not have any, you know, major car chase scenes or anything like that. Um, there's, there's a few action scenes in the movie. There's a couple of, uh, put chase scenes and some gunfights and some stuff. So it's not it's not it's not too cheap, but it's certainly not a, you know a huge budget Hollywood spectacular. And I didn't I didn't write it to be.
0: As a director, you obviously had to go in with a game plan. And plus, as the cast has mentioned on the other podcast, you were shooting at night. So I mean, I, I guess you had to have a lot of things planned out very carefully because you're only you're shooting at night, and obviously there's a window of time that you have to do it to to do the film.
1: Yeah, we we're not only shooting at night. We we're shooting at night in the summer. So, the nights are shorter. Uh, So, yes, literally every shot of this film was storyboarded. And about a year before uh, leading leading up to production, storyboarding every single shot of every single scene in the Mm -hmm. movie so that when we got on set, we knew, you know, we had our setups planned out. We knew exactly what we were doing. And if we hadn't done that, we never would have been able to squeeze this much material, this much footage, and this complex of, of footage into the relatively short shooting schedule that we had.
0: And plus, since you're shooting black and white, uh, John Newton hinted at it, you actually had to see what colors in real time would look good when shot in black and white, so you had to do some tests related to that, too, I'm sure. Uh,
1: shooting black and white is completely different art than shooting in color, and fortunately we had a great DP, Jason Cochard, who really knows black and white well, and was able to bring his knowledge to the table. It, I mean it is, it, it not only obviously creates a different emotional impact on the audience, but from a technical point of view, shooting some like, like, exactly like you said, you have to pay attention to the grayscale value of colors. Not pay attention. You can't use color to differentiate objects necessarily. Two colors with the same grayscale are going to read the same in black and white. Now we we shot it with with that in mind. What Jason did because he was also the color timer on the film. What he did in post production. We, we, we shot a lot of things where clothing and sets and colors were somewhat odd weren 't quite right. I mean you couldn't you know the, the original footage was shot in color, but you could never watch the movie that way because the colors are wrong um, and, and the reason we did it that way was so that in post-production he could enhance those colors, and so then when it was desaturated, each of the individual channels red, green, blue were, were pulled out, and the brightness of each individual channel and the gamma curve of each channel could be adjusted oh. so that you could make certain objects um, pop more than other ones. Right. The whole thing of the production design, the costuming,
0: the makeup, everything had to be planned with that in mind. Here's more with kipley Brown who plays Hoyle. Now the thing is about this uh this movie, even though it looks like 1940s, there's things like computers and and more modern stuff too, which um kind of gives it a Batman the animated series time displaced kind of thing, which I think makes it kind of interesting too. I think it gives it makes it its own thing, you know.
3: Yeah, well, that actually ties in really well with the, the basic premise of the plot. You know, what exactly is time, and and how sort of time is maybe not as straightforward as we think. Likewise, you know, we we went where James and, and went for a style that was reminiscent of the '40s, but had all of the trappings of today, so that it's sort of in this alternate universe. Yeah, where they both meld together, where time isn't quite as fixed as we think it is. Hmm. And that goes along with the script really well, too.
0: That's very cool. Now, you know, I know you can't say much, but it just seems to me that Chase Masterson's character of the singer has a big impact on Hoyle's life. Am I kind of in the right territory, Dan?
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The singer is a very mysterious character that sort of attaches herself to Hoyle. She's there, we think, to guide Hoyle through this series of sort of clues that she needs to follow to find what she's looking for. But at the same time, she has to allow Hoyle to actually make the discoveries herself. So she has to lead her in a way without overtly saying anything. So she uses these sort of playful tactics of dropping a hint here and there, or, you know, she's kind of like... um, I want to say like the dungeon master. I don't know if that's the right thing, but she, we get the impression that she knows what's going on. She can't tell Hoyle directly, but, but she can guide her. It's an interesting relationship because Hoyle is very independent, very closed off. She plays all of her cards close to her chest and she doesn't like not knowing what's going on. So the singer frustrates her because she knows that, you know, she's there to to try to tell her something, but she's not telling her what it is. and, and, she gets very frustrated and she doesn't know if she even wants to follow this woman at first. But then the relationship becomes much more, uh, close as Hoyle sort of surrenders to the idea that she's not in control and she has to allow herself to be guided.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that a tough thing for a character who likes to be in control to do? Absolutely.
3: Again, there's, there's alternate timelines and right. the, the fedora Hoyle, the one that's really dressed like the man, um, is, is the one that's the most closed off. Things Mm. have happened that you discover throughout the film that has made her part of the way she is, Mm -hmm. and that's the foil that really, really sort of fights against the singer's help because she thinks she can do it on her own. You know, she doesn't necessarily believe this woman can possibly know what's going on or that she could possibly guide her. And yet, every step of the way, she she drops these little clues, and lo and behold, they lead to something that. Hoyle needs
0: you've worn some pretty nice uh out, you know outfit uh, in the movie from what I've seen too Yes. that's yes, very yes. feminine
3: yes so. um in in alternate sort of times so right
0: right
2: yeah. oil
3: is a woman and, and appreciates that and kind of uh uses it sometimes um to get you know information
2: yeah
3: you know, Hoyle does at times embrace her femininity and rather than run from it I think the 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 fedora and the trench coat is as much sort of a costume for Hoyle as it was for me.
4: Okay. For her,
3: I don't think she realizes that it's a costume. It's it's a defense mechanism. Close mm-hmm. yourself off.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You yeah.
3: know, wrap yourself in this coat. Put on a hat. Don't let anyone see in.
0: Producer and actor on the piece, Chase Masterson, has more. I, I know you shot a lot at night because you needed it for the black and white effect.
4: So. We did. We, we, ha- we shot almost all night. Yeah. And there is only one daytime scene in the entire film. Oh, wow. And that's an interior scene (laughs) at the beginning of the movie. And even that was shot at like 6 o'clock in the morning after an (laughs) all-nighter, so... It was a hard shoot. It was 24 days, six-day weeks of all nights. Mm. So we would typically get to set about 5 o'clock and leave about uh, 8 in the morning,
2: something
4: like that, after we wrapped. and I mean, that's, you know, start to finish, you know, set up to uh you know like a six o'clock go mm-hmm. end at six a m uh tear down and and pull out it at something like seven thirty or eight in the morning wow yeah it was it was tough stuff,
0: yeah, it but sounds like it was, but you know indies are you you do that and then you know it pays it pays because it's it's all there too oh
4: dude, you know. yeah who's complaining yeah exactly, I, I always say because. Again, there are so many talented people out there. We're we're extremely blessed to be doing the work that we do.
0: Talk about your cast and and how they all came together to oh. uh, to be casting.
4: You know, we got so blessed with this, Tony. Um I uh I'm extremely proud to have um Several members, um, including John Newton, who is yeah. just a wonderful actor, and I, I think people, you know, have really well respected his work for a while, but yeah. even more so now. Um, he plays a, a role that is a bit out of character for the dashing sort that he usually plays.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: He's extremely vulnerable and dead on in this. So, um, for those of you who. Missed it last week. John is Superboy and, uh, was on Melrose Place and, and Desperate Housewives and, uh, several other great projects alive and others. Um, <laughs> Peter Mayhew. Peter is fabulous in this, wearing his real face. And it's about time. Yeah. And he, he just has such a wonderful face and he's just so expressive. I mean, you can watch that man's eyes mm-hmm, forever. Mm-hmm. And, um, just, you know, his heart just comes pouring out his face and it exudes so beautifully, and I'm really proud to have him in this. Mm-hmm. He plays a role that's interesting, and in a sense, you'll you'll be the judge of this, but it's, it's <laughs> I, I don't want to say too much.
0: Okay,
2: okay. He plays a
4: similar role to mine. Part of the reason that I say that is all of the cast members, except for Hoyle and Dudas, don't have names. We, yes. we don't. We don't have actual yes. character names. Mm-hmm. So that's why I keep referring to myself as singer. Peter has a similar role. Um, Megan Henning,
2: mm-hmm. who
4: uh, was on Seventh uh, Heaven and is, uh, has also a, a lovely resume to boot, um, plays a, a small role in this. Wonderful new actor named Nathan Mobley, who you can see in a film called The Other Side. Mm. Uh, has a, a fun role and is okay. quite wonderful in it. So we've we've just got a stellar cast. We got so blessed, and a lot of people are asking, well, you know, because of uh, several of our having a solid science fiction background, is right. that a purposeful act? And no, it wasn't. I I know, you know, having spoken with James and having been in on some of the casting, that we were um, just really casting the right actors for the role.
2: Yeah, definitely. And, I mean,
4: James was casting the right actors for the role, and. You'll be the judge of that, but I think you'll see it.
0: Did it take a while to do the casting, or did everything come together quickly?
4: Well, I was actually one of the last members to be cast. Oh, okay. Um, Kipley and John and Mick Skriba, who's also another wonderful actor, mm-hmm. um, very recognizable face. You can see him in a lot of stuff. He and a uh, couple of the other actors, Nathan... Uh, Warren Davis is also another wonderful mm-hmm. actor. Yeah. I Keep raving about our actors, don't I? Well, hey,
6: that's what
0: that's what a producer should be doing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. But it, it is a raving. good cast, so I mean, I can yeah. understand why you are raving. So that's it's a, well, yeah. a good point.
4: They they all came in um, before me. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, I had a hand in in getting us Peter and um, you know another couple of the, couple of the actors. So very was, cool. Yeah.
0: And finally, James Kerwin tells me about the production. How did you shoot in high def, or how did you? What
1: did you shoot in? Yeah, we were a uh, cool. recipient of the Panavision New Filmmakers Grant. They provided us with the Sony nine, the Panavision Sony nine hundred camera, which was the camera that was developed for George Lucas uh, when he shot Attack of the Clones. Nice. Um, it's the camera that Rodriguez uses on most of his films, and it's a really, really fine tool. And I had never shot digitally before, and I was a little wary of it because I was kind of a film
2: mm-hmm. snob.
1: But uh, once I saw. What, what could be done with it? And particularly Sin City, the way this camera shoots and can be desaturated into black and white and just get gorgeous images, I was, I was sold.
0: They, they use the same thing on Sin City as well? I, I, b- I believe that was
1: the camera he used. <laughs> yeah. Wow,
0: that's great. I mean, at first, was there a little hesitation, especially knowing you are going to eventually put everything in black and white, that will this work, Well, it won't work? Or or did you kind of have an idea, just saw enough tests to realize you were going to be okay?
1: Well, we, yeah, well, there was a lot of hesitation. We didn't know what camera we were going to use at first, and frankly, cause one of the reasons is because we didn't know what we could afford. Yeah. We, did, we did all sorts of different camera tests and sat in on camera tests that other films. We're doing that. We had people involved in and so forth. We, we, we tested different cameras, and we really, I mean, the Sony 900, especially the Panavise Sony 900, is an extremely expensive camera, and it's something that a film of our budget usually c- couldn't shoot on. So it was, all, it actually was something we weren't even really considering realistically um, until Chase managed. To um, get us the Panavision New Filmmakers Grant, thanks to uh, thanks to a wonderful guy at Panavision named Rick Halpern for for doing that for us. So well, we never cool. would have been able to do this
0: without them. Well, that's great. That's yeah. great to be able to you literally have something that state of the art is awesome. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm very grateful for it. Now, your production designer was that your sister Jill Kerwin? My production designer <laughs> was my sister. Yeah. I have a sister, and I have brothers too. So. Does that help with, like, having the shorthand with her where you don't have to explain as much because she knows what you like and don't like?
1: You know what? It it, it can be a double-edged sword. It helps Mm -hmm. sometimes, and and, and at other times it's... You you get into a sibling arguments, you know. Um, it, but but ultimately, having that person there who you you ultimately know, despite the fact that you're going to butt heads sometimes, <laughs> th- th- that's a person who you know has got your back, mm-hmm. and that was
0: very very reassuring to me. Yeah. Did you have more interior or exteriors in the film?
1: You know, that's a good question. I guess there's more interiors, mm-hmm. but it's fairly evenly balanced. I mean, there's a fair amount of exteriors as well. Uh, like Jason and John were saying, all of it was, all of it was done at night. Yeah. There's only one scene in the film that's set during the day. There's a couple other scenes that were interiors with no windows that we were able to shoot during the day. But w- with the exception of maybe two, three days, mm-hmm. everything else was shot at night.
0: The film is all shot. And then your post starts, and uh how long was your post and and obviously you uh you you had an idea of what you had already, and then you just went in there pretty much to cut to what you what your vision was right posts
1: um uh, lasted just under a year. It's a technical process, but it is a creative process as well. You know, yeah, you're right because I had everything storyboarded and it was shot very with with that in mind. I pretty much knew how I was going to cut it together, but there are still a lot of changes you wind up making in post production. Um, And so we took our time with it. We didn't. We were in no rush. We, We we took our time, and I think we came up with a really really a product that I'm very proud of.
0: Special thanks to Chase Masterson who set up all the interviews you've heard. Yesterday Was a Lie is now on DVD and available for viewing on Netflix. This is a stylish noir mystery on perhaps the biggest mystery, the frailties of the human heart. Thank you for listening to my time travel marathon here on New Year's Eve as we go into a new year and travel in time ourselves to see where the fates take us. This is Tony
2: Talata.